Welcome back, dear listeners. This is Charlotte, creative and technical director here at Evidence for Faith. And we are almost done with this series in Jonah. Finally, we'll have one of them complete. I know I'm happy because I have to edit all these. <laughs> Anyways, I hope you're really enjoying these. We are in session seven of Jonah. We got two more to go after this. As always, you can find the PowerPoint and worksheets that go along with this lesson at our website at evidenceforfaith.org. You can also help support this program and keep it free by donating at evidenceforfaith.org give. And here is Michael in session seven of Jonah. We'll go ahead tonight and we'll start with a word of prayer and we'll get going. Father, we thank you so much for this Again, this day you've given us, and we thank you for the blessings of life that you have bestowed upon us, and we thank you. Lord, we thank you also for your word that you've given us and for the opportunity in this country that we can still openly sit with our word open and just studying your word, listening to you, and we thank you for that that freedom that we still have. We thank you for the gift of the Word of God, for these 66 love letters that, Lord, you have given us. And we pray that tonight, again, your Spirit will just come upon us and teach us, speak to us, and may we not just learn things about Jonah, but, Lord, may you really just take something, your Spirit take something from the lesson tonight and speak to us all. You know each person's individual needs. You know everybody's heart. And I just pray that you would just, just take this tonight, this offering that we're making up as we study this lesson, and Lord, take these words and, and use them some way. And we thank you for the opportunity in Jesus' name, amen. So Jonah, it was sort of funny. Today I was asked by Ron Robertson, those of you who know Ron, um, and he knows we've been doing Jonah. When we started, he knew I was starting Jonah. And Ron has actually sat through my Jonah class before. Um, actually, I think he sat through it like three times, actually. He's got, watched me do this and listened to me do it. And uh, yesterday he came up to me and he said, you know, I haven't been there on Sunday night in a long time. He says, what are you doing since Jonah's over? <laughs> I said, Jonah's not over yet. He says, what? How come? I said, well, we've got a little deeper into it than what you heard. He goes, oh, you didn't tell me you were doing that. <laughs> So I said, it's okay, Ron, we're recording everything. So he goes, okay, you know, have to get a set of that or whatever. So, But tonight we're looking at Jonah chapter 4 in our Whale of a Tale book here. And as we get into this one, we're just looking at the first three verses. And um, I, I couldn't go any, deep or any further in that because there's so much information actually in this. And I want to bring you back up to speed a little bit of what just happened in chapter 3. Because now... Um, we're going to see a side of Jonah that's really, I mean, we already saw a bad side in chapter one, but now we're going to see something really different um, about this prophet of God and what's been going on in all these places and in the countries and things. And I'll tell you, in, in this lesson, now I've been teaching this uh, uh, quite a few, I have no idea how many times I've spoke on Jonah. I, I really don't know. I bet it's close to 10 times I've done this lesson. Um, I mean, we did this on a marine biology trip. I mean, this is a perfect marine biology trip topic, isn't it? I mean, gee. So, yeah, you're seeing sharks? Yeah. Um, so, 
I've done this a lot of times, and to be honest with you, I, I love this book, and I, I, I'm just fascinated by this book because the book is so much on salvation. But I will totally be honest with you, this lesson here is the one that hits me the deepest and is the most convicting to me. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit as we get towards the end of this. But let's look at the first three verses of this chapter. Uh, Jonah chapter 4 out of the English Standard Version, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please just take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Pity party, right? Pity party. Yeah. Now, if you recall, if you were here or uh, if you weren't, let me bring you up um, on the where we're at on this. The people of Nineveh have... Uh, repented and they have turned to God and what's really cool is God forgave them now remember who the people of Nineveh are they are for one the enemies of Israel they have been having raiding parties they've been conquering countries and stuff around and conquering cities they are the enemy they are Gentiles they are also <laughs> the most evil culture or one of the most evil cultures who have ever existed on the planet. They do atrocities to their victims and the people they conquer and stuff. So this is a really nasty uh, uh, city and, and the city itself with the decorations of, of the body parts and stuff that they did to decorate the city. Everything is hideous that this place was... Um, where Jonah was sent. And as Jonah preached to them, there was a massive revival, the largest revival ever known in human history. Because as we're going to see in the next lesson, how big this city was, though I've actually mentioned it before, scholars think, really, well, I'll just say it, scholars think that Nineveh was probably about 300,000 people. And that is a tremendous revival. I mean, I would... <laughs> I've never spoke to a group that big, and you know, I've, I've spoken to groups, and you know, even Billy Graham and, and people going around never spoke to a group that big. And then have the whole population repent and turn to God. I mean, wow! Uh, you would think anybody would be up and jumping and up and down and praising God for all of this. Not Jonah. <laughs> no. Um, but the largest revival ever held, as far as we know, in human history was this right here. And now, that's what we talked about last week. But now I want to bring you up to speed on something in a way. Jonah, if you recall, was a prophet of God who lived in the city of Gath Hepper, which is very close geographically to where Nazareth is uh, today and at the time of Christ. They're practically, they're only like a mile apart. So Jonah is from the same place where Jesus grows up in the, the hill country of Galilee. And being up there, that's the northern kingdom because the kingdom um, 
the Hebrew had split. There had been the coup under Rehoboam, and uh, Jeroboam uh, I rebelled, and the nation split. Ten tribes went to the north, if you'll recall. Two to the south stayed loyal to David. Judah and Benjamin molded into one tribe just called Judah. And, but the other tribes all to the north became the country of Israel, as he's often, it's often called. Sometimes it's called Samaria, and sometimes it's called Ephraim. Um, three different names for the same place in the Bible. But they're all talking at the same place, those, those ten tribes. Now, at the time of Jonah, because it told us in, in the book of uh, 2 Kings that Jonah was a prophet of God from Gathhepher during the reign of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II. So what I want to show you now, and you don't glean this out of the book of Jonah, but you have to look back at the book of Kings and Chronicles to see what's going on. I want to talk about what's happening back in Israel when this prophet of God has been sent to a different country, to actually to the enemy country. God sent him to the enemy. Are you catching that? You know, you go to the enemy during a war or something like that, you're considered a traitor. So he's being sent now to the uh, Assyrians, to their capital, what's taking place back in Israel under King Jeroboam II. Now to answer the question, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just show you a quote taken out of a book entitled Jeroboam II. It was written by a guy named Jacob Isaacs. He's a historian. And he put it, and as I was coming across, as I started to just write this stuff out, then I came across this book, and I was like, oh, this, this describes it perfectly. So let me just quote right out of Jeroboam II by Jacob Isaacs. This is what is going on. Back at the same time Jonah is doing his thing, this is what's going on at home. Quote, During his 40 years as king over Israel, he recovered every piece of land that had ever been lost by his predecessors. Hmm. An economic prosperity, which found expression in an extreme, extremely wealthy and luxurious life of the population. I'll just stop the quote here for a second. That's telling you what's going on back there. The people are having, and historians tell us, that under Jeroboam II, the northern kingdom became, that was their, their prime time. Uh, they had the best economy, the people were the most luxurious, um, and it was a, a lot of wealth there. So the people were doing good. Now go back to the quote as uh, Isaacs continues in his book here. This unusual prosperity, however, was accompanied by an unprecedented collapse of moral standards. It was an age of corruption in which wealth and power ruled the day. During this age, there appeared in Israel great prophets who deplored the wickedness of the people and appealed for a return to the laws of justice and morality of the Torah. However, the people went on their own way. Idolatry spread all over the country. The people built many altars on mountains to serve Baal and Ashtart, and they even sacrificed their children to the ab abominable cult of Moloch. They viewed with contempt the teachings of the Torah and the Holy Commandments, unquote. That's what's going on back home. Interesting, isn't it? This is the, these were the people that Jonah has been preaching to all this time. 
They have totally rejected God. I mean, that's what's happened. Israel has totally rejected God. Looking at the Torah with contempt, you know, the morality they're making fun of and everything, and the idolatry, even children, you know, uh, the child sacrifice to all these different idols. Man, can it get worse than that? But they totally reject it. So Jonah, who was a prophet there, and there were other prophets too, as we know in the minor prophets, many of those were up in um, this land. And the thing is, they were being um, just ignored by the kings and stuff, and Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was like the most successful. He had the longest reign of any of the northern kings. He lived the longest, had the longest reign of any of them. And I think it's something like 44 years, I want to say, he reigned in uh, Israel. And during this time, it just was, yes, they had a great economy, things were great for that, but they totally turned away from God. They totally reject God. At this point, then Noah, or I'm sorry, Jonah gets this call to leave the place, his own country that has rejected God, and to go over to Nineveh, to the land of the Assyrians. You know, Jonah's been preaching to them. Obviously, he's not doing too well with his job as a, a missionary to his own people. So... God is sending him to the enemy territory to preach to them. And what is amazing is the people that he was preaching to of his own nation totally rejected him and the other prophets, where on the other hand, what happens? Nineveh repents and turns to God. Even so, you would think, wow, Jonah would be really excited about this. But we got to remember, this is the enemy. What he was trying to get, what Jonah's whole purpose is, is to get people to follow God. And his own people wouldn't do it. God sends them to the enemy, and they, they accept the grace and mercy of God. So Jonah is, wow. Now, I'll tell you, if we could stop, if the book of Jonah stopped right now, if it just ended right at this point, I think everybody would agree he, was pro- he would go down as probably the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. I mean, after that uh, massive revival he just led, Everybody said, wow, this is fantastic. What a, what a dynamic speaker or whatever. Of course, it's God's spirit that does all of this. But I think if it had not been for chapter 4, we'd probably have a really good opinion of Jonah. Um, but that's not what happened. You see, there's something that God does with all of us, particularly well, all of us Christians, and all of us who are in ministry in particular. God does something. He looks at the hearts. God looks at the heart of Christians, and He looks to see what our motives are. He wants to see where our heart is. Because sometimes we can get caught up in our own little idea that, wow, God really uses me, and I'm really special. And Jonah, just doing this big revival, um, yeah, I mean, this is what he was called to do. He went and he did this, but you can tell his heart was not in this as we see it as this thing starts. You see, Jonah's problem was where his heart was. It wasn't in his actions. It was where his heart was. And in the commentary on Jonah by Dr. Warren Wearsby, he says here, and I thought this was a great quote, so I'm just going to give it to you right out of his commentary quote, it isn't enough for God's servants simply to do their master's will. They must do the will of God from the heart, unquote. And that is so true. And all of us in Christian service, which is all Christians, we all should be very careful of this. That, you know, just doing what God wants us to do, yes, that's good. But why are we doing it? 
Why? What is our true motive? Are we trying to gain fame? Are we trying to gain acknowledgement? Why are we doing these things? Because we're supposed to do it the will of God from the heart. And that's actually scriptural because Warren Wearsby, I know, is taking this out of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5, 6, and 7, which says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, now get this, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, unquote. That is what Wearsby is talking about, and that was Jonah's problem. Jonah was doing what he was told to do. Of course, God had to really steer him, almost like a, a horse, you're pulling the bridle to get him to turn. But he did it, but he was not doing it with the right heart. And sometimes we Christians do that same thing. We will do certain things that we know we're supposed to do. Okay, God, I know I'm supposed to do this, so I'll go get it done. That is not a really good way of worshiping God. Because, you know, our, our actions, the way we live our lives is a true form of worship. And to do it just out of like, well, okay, I'm supposed to do it. We're supposed to have a willing heart, a heart of service. And, as it says here, as you would for Christ. Now, I know I've probably said this story before, and pardon me if you've heard it, but I want to, it, it just really fits really well here. Um, back in 19... I don't know if it was 98 or 99. It was the first time I came up here to Fort to work. And I was assigned to clean a cabin here at Fort Wilderness. Now, the founder of Fort Wilderness, Truman Robertson, was still around. And many of you remember Truman very fondly. Some of you know Truman very well. And I was uh, assigned to go clean the Sioux cabin, which is right there in front of the lake. So they told me, they just said, Michael, um, we want, your job is to clean the Sioux cabin. Okay. So I went over. They said, that all your cleaning supplies, are, we're at this place, and you just get them and carry them over there. And I said, okay. So I had my buckets and my cleaning things and rolls of paper towel and sanitizers and stuff, and I was carrying this over, and I uh, was having to make two trips to carry everything, and I set it down in front of the cabin, and I went back to get the second load, and I set it down in front of the, uh, coming back to sit down uh, with the others and get that now to bring it inside the cabin. And Truman pulled up in his little golf cart, that he was riding around on. Now Truman at this point had already lost his leg, so he's riding around in a golf cart all the time. And Truman pulled right up to the cabin, and he says, Michael. And I go, hi, Truman. And he says, you got a minute? I said, sure. He says, come here, sit down. So I thought, yeah, what the heck? So I went over and I sat down next to him, and he says, what you doing? And I said, well, I was assigned to clean the cabin here. Uh-huh. Do you know how to clean that cabin? I, I said, Truman, you know me. I used to teach microbiology. I'm a bug-phobic person. I mean, I'll, I'll make it so sterile in here you could do surgery in that room. I mean, I'll clean it. And he goes, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Do you know how to clean a cabin? All right. What do you mean? He says, let me tell you how you clean a cabin here. You're going to go in there and you're going to clean that cabin as if the Lord Jesus Christ is the person who's going to stay there. That's who you're doing it for. And he said to me, he says, I know you're new here. Tom Robertson is not your boss. I am not your boss. Ron is not your boss. 
Your boss is the Lord. That's who you're working for. So when you clean that cabin, you clean it as if Jesus himself is going to be staying in there. I said, I got gotcha. you. Because my favorite verse in the Bible is Colossians 3, 17. Whatever you do, you do it as for the Lord, not for men. And I said, you have no worries there, Truman. That's, that's how I do things. That's the way I'm going to do it. And that's why, if you've ever noticed, whenever I teach, I almost always have PowerPoints and stuff like this. I don't do this for my own benefit. I do this because I want you people to be able to learn things. And so I do it to the best I possibly can. And that's the way, you know, we're told to do it. We're supposed to do this as we would for Christ. And we're supposed to have the willing heart to work for God. Now, I'll be honest with you. There have been times there have been things I have not been like that. And that's why this passage here is really convicting for me. Because there have been times I have been sort of like Jonah. And it, God really, boy, he... He takes these scriptures and that's what they're there for, to change us. Not just for us to gain head knowledge. We're supposed to be changed by this stuff. And that's what it is. So let's take a look now at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Doesn't that sound like a strange phrase to you? <laughs> I just think that's sort of weird the way it's worded. So, of course, anytime I ever look at something like this, okay, let's go back to the original you know, language. Let's go back to the Hebrew. And um, in Hebrew, it's three words that this is being described as Raha Gadol Kara is the phrasing going across here. Now, I put these in color so you can understand which one it is. Raha is here. Raha means bad or evil. It's the Hebrew word for bad or uh, an exceedingly evil thing. That's the word here. Now, remember, we're describing Jonah at this point. Jonah, bad, evil. Mm. Gadol is to emphasize like greatly something, that it's going to be great in whatever the action is here. It's going to be great. So a great evil, bad thing. And then kara is to, to burn not to the set matches, but to burn with like an anger, to, to just really uh, grit your teeth in total anger, that type of, of description here. So he is, uh, Jonah, you can get now, it's, it's an evil, a greatly evil, angry sensation and emotion that has come upon him. What a way to react to a revival. But that's how he's feeling. So that's what that phrase is actually meaning. I mean, he is really ticked off. He is really angry. And it's just burning on him. He is so mad that these people have repented. Now, you get to verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So, now we notice that in this book, Jonah prays two times. Two prayers are recorded. I know we prayed more than that, but two are recorded. Now, the first one, he's inside the fish, you know. So, uh, that prayer, if you'll recall in that lesson, in chapter 2, he was very humble. He was brokenhearted and everything. He had a, um, in, in that first prayer, he, he was, you know, just as emotionally moved for, for God forgive me as he could be. 
But this prayer is with an angry attitude, a totally different 180 degree difference that we see here. Now, when he made this prayer, actually, when did he do this? When did he pray this? We aren't told when he actually said, oh, Lord, this is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? We have no idea when this is was said, if it was before he got on the boat or maybe after, probably not after, but probably before. It's not recorded. But apparently, Jonah is telling us this was part of the reason he did not want to go. Jonah did not want to go, not just because of the Assyrians being really nasty people, as we talked about in uh, chapter 1, which they were, and that would have scared anybody. But Jonah, are you getting this now? Jonah did not want to go because he did not want those people to be saved. He didn't want them to accept God. That's his real motive here. And it comes out very strong as he says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. Well, he experienced that, of course. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He is telling us, I know, God, that you are merciful, that if people will call out to you, you're going to forgive them no matter how evil they are. And God, I don't want them to get that. That's what he was saying. He knew that Jehovah God, Yehovah, would, would not destroy Nineveh if the people repented. That's what he was afraid of. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he's a missionary, and he is not wanting his congregation that he gets here to see and experience God's forgiveness. There's something wrong with that guy's heart. Mm -hmm. Because he knew if the people repented after his preaching, two things are going to happen. The calamity wouldn't follow. Well, he didn't want them to get saved, but the calamity wouldn't follow. The city would not be destroyed. You know what it looks like then? He's a false prophet. Do you remember what he was telling the people? He was telling the people, in 40 days, God is going to destroy this city. Notice he did not say, in 40 days, God is going to destroy the city if you do not repent. If you repent, God will spare you. He doesn't say that. He just has been saying, as it's recorded in chapter 3, that, he is, that the city is going to be destroyed. And that's what he preached. Now, if it doesn't happen, if they repent, now the city is not going to be destroyed. He's like a false prophet because the city won't be destroyed then. So he had another fear that was stuck in there. Do you catch that? So he preached a message, a forthcoming disaster, without mentioning salvation. I mean, he was hoping that God was going to punish them and destroy the city. That was his dream because they're the enemy. And he was hoping that was going to happen. But he had a deep knowledge and knowing of God being merciful that if they do, he's going to save them. And then it won't happen. And I'm going to be like a false prophet. Remember, false prophets, you can be stoned. But um, he's going to look like an idiot then. And then when people, you know, some critic might say, hey, Jonah, what happened? The city didn't get destroyed. What kind of prophet are you? And that, that scared him, obviously. He was more concerned about his reputation than he was the souls of the people God sent him to minister to. And, of course, being Gentiles, these Assyrians, of course, he definitely did not want them to be forgiven by God. These were the enemies. These were people who had killed his own countrymen. He didn't want them to be saved. Mm -mm. 
Again, looking at Warren Wearsby's commentary on, on uh, Jonah, I'm just going to quote out of it because he expresses it better than I can. So let me just give you the quote as he's summing this thing up here um, in his book. Quote, Jonah was concerned about his reputation, not only before the Ninevites, but also before the Jews back home. His Jewish friends would want to see all the Assyrians destroyed, not just the people of Nineveh. When Jonah's friends found out that he had been the means of saving Nineveh from God's wrath, they could consider him a traitor to the official Jewish foreign policy. Jonah was a narrow-minded patriot who saw Assyria only as a dangerous enemy to destroy and not as a company of repentant sinners to be brought to the Lord. When reputation is more important than character, and pleasing ourselves and our friends is more important than pleasing God, we, then we are in danger of becoming like Jonah. So true. Wearsby, I think, has, the, has this right on. I believe he is right on the point. He's like a traitor to his own people, those who are still following God, though they're few, but even those who are not, because that's the enemy people. And he goes over, you know, his own country rejects God. He goes over here. They accept God. They repent. God spares them. And, Jonah, if you were really good in following our people, why don't you go over there and just tell God to kill them? Which, that's what Jonah wanted to do, but obviously. So, we get to verse 3 now. Now, uh, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Here we go to the pity party. And you know, there have been other prophets of God who have prayed that same thing. Does anybody ha think of one, a very famous prophet comes to mind, prayed the exact same thing? There's one that has the exact, almost the same wording. Mm, no? That's a good guess, though. Elijah. Elijah. Yeah, do you remember... Um, when Elijah had the battle with the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth uh, on Mount Carmel. Remember, the, that's a classic Sunday school story. Remember, uh, he, tell, he ha issues a challenge to the enemy. This is when Ahab's alive. Um, and he issues a challenge to the, the prophets of Baal. You guys go form an altar. Uh, we have two oxen. You pick the ox. You build your altar. I have mine. There's 400 of, 450 of you prophets, and you have another 400 over here. So there's 850 against just me. And we'll both build an altar. And you guys go first. Call down fire from heaven. I'll call down fire from heaven. The God who responds first with fire from heaven is the true God. So all the nation goes to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is very high up. It's actually, unless you've been there, it's not one mountain. It's a mountain range, Mount Carmel. It's not one mountain. It's a long range that goes almost from the sea, from the Mediterranean, all the way into the Jezreel Valley. And if you go to the, the, as you're right there on the edge of the Jezreel Valley, there's a large, tall uh, peak right there. And there's a little monument and a little monastery and stuff that they say that that's where it took place. We don't know where it took place, but it was somewhere up there. And the thing is, it has a commanding view of the whole valley down below. Megiddo is down to the south, Mount Tabor is in the background. It's a flat plain. Many battles throughout history have been fought there. Um, and as he's doing this, if you'll recall, 
Um, he's making fun. As the prophets of Baal go first, remember, he's making fun of them. In, in a loose English translation, he says, you know, call out louder. Maybe your God's on the toilet. That's one of the meanings of what he says. Or maybe he's asleep or on a trip into a foreign land. Shout louder. And they're cutting themselves and everything, calling out, and nothing happens. And then Elijah gets up. Remember, the story goes over and starts a prayer. Doesn't even finish the prayer. And all of a sudden, boom, and everything's gone. And then the people did what? Do you remember? Well, before that, I mean, immediately after, the, all the people there started to say something. It says, the people started shouting, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Actually, that's Elijah's name. Elijah, the Lord is God. And they were calling out. It was uh, some scholar, I know John MacArthur said this one time, that it was like the people just started shouting, Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. And they were doing that type of thing because that's what they were saying. So he had a high moment right there. And then, of course, he prays, and they have the rainstorm, stuff like this. But then what happens? Word gets to Jezebel, who was not there, Ahab's wife. Ahab must have been there through this whole thing. But Jezebel wasn't. Remember what happens with Jezebel. Jezebel says, you just killed all my prophets. The gods do worse to me if I don't kill you by this time tomorrow. And what did our hero do? He runs for his life. And we pick this up in 1 Kings 19, 1 and 4. Ahab told uh, Jezebel, all that Elijah had done, how he killed all the prophets with the sword. He had them all executed. Then Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. By the way, that is the opposite side of the country. He is down at the very bottom now which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it's, it is enough. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Why was he so upset? The reason Elijah was upset is because he had this self-pity. He thought he was the only one left. Also, he just had a massive spiritual victory, hundreds, probably thousands of people there that started saying, yeah, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. But you know something? It didn't change their life because they went right back into the evil worship of the idols and stuff like that. For a day, it probably made a difference. That day, everybody went home, wow, Lord's God. But then, oh, I don't want to get my, rid of my idols. I sort of like this. It didn't change the people. So Elijah is sort of viewing himself as a failure. And he's all depressed even though he just won a tremendous victory, the guy gets depressed, sits down, and just says, okay, Lord, after he's run away, take my life. I mean, after God has spared him so many times, he runs away. But that's the sad thing about it. So because we have two characters that are very similar, let's build a T-chart. Whenever you're going to do a comparison, look at a T-chart and see what we have. So I've got one drawn out here for you. We have Elijah versus Jonah, two prophets of God both in the northern kingdom. Elijah experienced a tremendous spiritual victory against these idol prophets and stuff. Jonah experienced a tremendous victory in uh, being the active uh, person that God used to bring about the largest revival ever known in human history. Both of them, tremendous victories. But Elijah 
did not see the expected results. He was expecting everybody now to turn over and turn towards God, and it didn't happen. The people stayed with their idol worship. It made a difference in their life for like one day, and then they went right back to where there was. Jezebel is bringing back, she starts making more priests and stuff, and uh, just appointing people, and she's after his life. Didn't change her, didn't do much to change Ahab either. Of course, he, ever, he always did whatever his wife said. So he didn't get, Elijah didn't get the results that he expected. He thought the whole nation would turn back, um, but it didn't happen. So he didn't get the expected results of, of zeal for the Lord's work as he wanted. Jonah, on the opposite side, Jonah didn't carry out the, th um, God didn't carry out the threat of the prophecy. Jonah was preaching, God's going to destroy the city. He's going to destroy all of you people. That's not what happened. Because the people did repent. Here they didn't with Elijah. Here they do. You see the opposite of this? How cool this is? Here, what you know, the people did not repent with Elijah. Here with Jonah, the people repented. And then Jonah gets all upset. Despair caused by this non-fulfillment of his prophecy. Oh, God, now I look at it like an idiot. Just kill me. Elijah, on the other hand, Lord, I'm not good for anything. Kill me. It's just so interesting that these two people, two prophets of God, having both of them tremendous spiritual victory, the way they look at it is so different, yet they pray for the same thing. God, just take my life. Yeah, the pity parties that happen. And it happens to a lot of people. We lose sight of God because we're not doing things specifically for God's will and with God's heart. We started to do it for ourselves and we get disappointed. So Jonah made the mistake in his ministry of not putting to death his self or his flesh, as Paul probably would have put it, for the glory of God and for his kingdom. He was so concerned about himself, his image. What are the people back home going to think? What? These people, they're probably going to think I'm a false prophet. Gee, I just, I can't stand this. Uh, God, just kill me. He wasn't doing it with the right heart. And we do this also. We, like Jonah, many times will find ourselves in a place of discouragement, in a place of depression and of despair when, even when we're working for God, if we don't have our heart in the right position. If it becomes like a pride thing, if it starts to um, interfere with our vision, it's like putting blinders on. Jonah just couldn't see any other thing except himself. He lost sight of what God's purpose was. And that's what we're all supposed to be doing. What is God's will in this and to be willing to do it? That's what we, all of us, myself included, we need to be careful that we don't fall into this. That we don't fall into that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this lesson here tonight. And this one, Lord, this really sometimes hits close to home. Because as Christians, we're, we're supposed to do things and not expect benefits on our own, but the, the actions that we do glorify you and, and, Lord, increase your kingdom. But sometimes we get a little messed up, Lord, and we need your spirit to help guide us, that we don't concentrate on our, our pride and our, our flesh, as Paul would say it. So help us to realize 
Help us to see deeply into our own lives and our own hearts as to why we're really doing things. And Spirit, please help us to have the right willing attitude. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. And on that note, this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.